Climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Everybody, thanks so much. Welcome back to the uh, second now episode of Cockpit Council. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm Chief Legal Officer at Link Squares, and today with me is Andy Dale. Andy is the GC and Chief Privacy Officer at Alice, which is a uh, B2B gifting platform startup here in Boston. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey Tim, how are you? Doing well, doing well. So, uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, uh, I've been a GC at this point at three tech startups in Boston. Prior to that, I was the was on the legal team at TD Ameritrade for five years and in a law firm before that, and then I worked at ESPN before that. Um, but uh, as we say at Alice, uh, my five to nine is that I'm a dad and a tennis player and a cook, and um, like a bottle of wine, and you know that that's a little bit a little bit of an overview. Awesome. So I'm just going with the going with the general assumption that, of course, the law firm was your favorite job, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I worked at a law firm in law school, the second two years of law school, and actually had a really good experience with a great a series of great mentors and great partners that were litigators. And I didn't end up being a litigator, but it showed me the value of having really great teachers at that point in your career. And then I went and clerked for a judge who was another great mentor. And then I went into a law firm and it was really terrible. So it was a terrible experience with a very difficult uh, person who didn't train me very well. And when I got the opportunity to make that change and get in-house, I went in and I and I remember doing a project, the, one of the first times doing a project in my boss at the time saying, like, thank you, great job. And I just didn't even know, like, like know what to do with that. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, you know one of one of the common stories. I've been fortunate enough to never have to work at a law firm in my entire career, so it's been it's been great. Um, not all bad. It's not all bad, and I know you know I have a, a good friend who was in house for a while and then went back into private practice, and I used to mess with him and joke, "How did you do that? How could you do that?" And and you know he always said to me, you know he has now the ability to work with the team that he wants. He, you know, has a, a firm that's really supportive. And so, like, there's a lot of I don't want to bash all law firms because there are plenty of firms that uh, that allow you to be yourself, you know, work how you want to work, uh, work with clients that you like and and work with the team that you like. So it's not all bad. I just happen to have a difficult experience myself. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, it seems like you're you found yourself at an outstanding spot right now. And. You know, as, uh, one of one of the coolest things that I love is is following you on LinkedIn and seeing a lot of your posts about uh, about your podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, how that started, and uh, obviously you have a ton of fun with it. It's it's just awesome. It's so fun. Thanks. It's been one of the most fun things to do, and during COVID, it allowed me to spend a lot of time with my good friend Pedro, who is uh, who runs ad policy at Facebook now, and he was at Salesforce and Oracle before that, and um allows us to get together and really just you know rap with really smart interesting fun people 
but with kind of a loose 80s vibe. We keep it really light and fun. And the best thing about it was it's just so fully supported by Alice. You know, the reason that one of the big reasons I joined when I met uh, our founder, CEO, Greg, was, um, you know, we really bonded over privacy and he just he really uh, forward thinking in that respect and understood and got that. Um, I'm not just hiring a GC, you know, I'm, I'm hiring somebody that can bring some product counseling to the table, can bring some privacy, not just privacy compliance, but like looking around the corner, what, what, what's going to be important. If you're in a personal gifting business and you're going to process a lot of personal data, um, he was just really, we were really aligned that way. And so when I got in the discussion about how to, how to, you know, put that, put any content out there about that, because um, my friend Jeff Mays, who runs data science here, always says privacy is a feature. It's a feature of Alice. So um, the marketing team and I brainstormed and we, we leaned in and we, we created and Pedro and I have been talking about doing something for a while. So it's been really, really fun to do. That's awesome. That's awesome. Where can uh, where can people find it? Well, it's uh, it's on uh, everywhere you get podcasts. So Apple, Spotify, places like that. It's on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. And you can also um, Google it and just get to the, there's a page that hangs off of the Alice um, page, a landing page there too, with all the, the video episodes too. It's on video and podcast. It's been really fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, obviously being in the privacy space, like let's let's dig into that a little bit. Um, what are some of the major trends you're seeing in the privacy space and, and maybe some predictions for, for things to come? I mean, it's interesting, Tim, like, you know, I don't know how the experience was for you. I'd be interested to know like what it was like, uh, at DraftKings and, and before for you, because I fell into it, you know, backwards, really. I was at TD Ameritrade and I was really early in my career, commercial contracts guy doing deals and, um, and working with some of our more innovative teams on kind of the tech, the the tech team that was really focused on building different parts of the platform, um, and and data naturally started to come up, and and I started to work. I happened to luckily be next door to our chief privacy officer, and he was the first person I ever met that had any certifications or had any like any um, knowledge. And at that time, it was really just about financial data. It wasn't necessarily about you know, the depth and the breadth of, of data that we think about now. So like back then it was, you know, me just kind of tapping his intellect and he, he then became my boss two, two and a half years later, I started working for him still doing some of the commercial work, but also then expanding into as a Meritrade scaled with privacy and, and data. Um, I was able to do that. So it was just really, I fell into it. It was organic. It was interesting to me. Um, and then I, when I went to leave, and moved to Boston, I told him I'm joining an ad tech company and I had helped Ameritrade buy uh, a license to a company called BlueKai, which was a data management platform to start managing all of their browser cookies and start kind of doing digital advertising. That right. got bought by Oracle eventually. Um, and that's actually how I met Pedro. But uh, ultimately, uh, you know, he, he ended up saying to me, you're gonna have a ton of privacy issues there. And I paused and I said, like, what are you talking about? It's just browser cookies. And he was like, you'll see, you'll see. And like, I, sure enough, the first day I got there, I sat down with the CEO of DataZoo. And, uh, and I said to him, like, what, what in your mind, other than the obvious things, like what's really important? And, and to focus 
on. And he was like, privacy right away. You know, it's, it's going to be huge. It's going to be impactful in ad tech and other industries. And, um, and so from there, I just kind of like took that guidance and ran with it. And I got a ton of support from our CFO, uh, Rich, who was great about backing me and getting certified and knew that it would help the business. And like, and just from there, it kind of just took off and, and it started just becoming table stakes for the businesses that I was working on, not just, as Jeff says, a feature, you know, not just a thing we had to deal with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it was definitely an interesting an interesting um, area of focus for us at, at, at DraftKings. I mean, obviously, um, just given that business model, tons of, you know, payment card information and going through the PCI, you know, PCI compliance stuff and ISO 27001, like, there's sort of that end of it. But then, you know, first the GDPR was sort of making things a little bit more broad and then trying to figure out, you know, how to how to manage things particularly and and working with uh, with like commercial vendors and things like that once the CCPA came out. I mean, we were fortunate enough to not have a, uh, at the time we didn't really have a, uh, a massive footprint in, um, uh, in Europe. And, um, the bulk of our, our, our customers were all located in the United States. And so, uh, but once the CCPA, uh, hit, it was absolutely one of those like, okay, we have to start building out a team and, and paying attention to this. And so, uh, yeah, we just, we, we started to build out, uh, build out a, uh, a division of the compliance function to, um, uh, to manage that stuff. So, you know, and now it, you know, it, it's interesting as I think about, um, you know, like if I had to make a prediction on what's going to happen from a regulatory standpoint with, with the privacy, it's probably not going to be all that different than what, you know, than what we saw with, uh, with fantasy sports regs, where it's going to be this patchwork of, of states and sort of somebody's going to do one thing that another state didn't do. And like everyone's going to add that thing, whether it makes sense or it doesn't, you know, you and that's. If you look at how companies are pre proceeding now, you had the GDPR happen and then you had the CCPA happen. And inevitably, we all knew, you know, people that have been doing this knew this was going to happen, which is I'm going to take my GDPR DPA and data privacy agreement and I'm going to mash CCPA into it and I'm going to send it to everybody. And so then even if you're not processing European data, you're sitting there looking at the GDPR as the floor, you know, kind of anyway, and you're making those contractual commitments in the agreement. We had this discussion on my team very recently. We have a small footprint in Europe, but, you know, with respect to certain rules of the GDPR, we've contractually committed to those. So right. if we change a, a key, for example, if we decide to change a key sub processor that's going to process personal information, I should tell all my customers that I'm doing that. And if they object, I need to hear that objection out. Even if like, I'm not processing EU data and the GDPR says I have to do that, but the CCPA doesn't say I have to do that. But you know, what are you going to do? You got to, you got to, you got to listen and you got to um, apply these things the best way you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting coming at it from, you know, from the perspective of an in-house attorney and, um, you know, I mean, as you think about, you know, the role of in-house counsel, and, and we can talk about this in terms of privacy or just generally speaking, like how how are you seeing that evolve over time? And and it sounds it sounds like you've had some pretty forward-thinking executives that have brought you on 
um, you know, I, I, I also have, uh, throughout my career had some, some people who recognized that their first in-house counsel wasn't there to just solve a problem. There was more to it than, than that. Uh, but interested in, in hearing your take on sort of how the role has evolved throughout your career and where you see it going. Super lucky about what you just said to have the support of those people, particularly starting with that CPO at Ameritrade. But then when I kind of went off on my own, the CEO at DataZoo was a lawyer. So like a lapsed, a lapsed lawyer, but but he he already inherently knew kind of, you know, and understood the positions that that I would be put in. That was helpful. Some people maybe would have found that less helpful because he would like, you know, wade in a lot. But I think right. once we once we establish trust with each other and on the privacy realm, I, I, I quickly exceeded what, what he you know, was doing. So we, we had good, like a good back and forth on that stuff. And he was a mentor in that sense and very forward thinking about those kinds of things. And then when we established trust and then we built on it. And then at, my, at the company that followed, um, our CEO very quickly understood the importance of privacy to the board and customers. And, and very quickly understood that we were able to, from a legal perspective, capture through, it was, it was loyalty program software, but he understood the key legal issue that we could acquire opt-in consent for our users through a loyalty program and then do stuff you know, with the data to improve their experience. So he quickly understood and then was very supportive on like the things that mattered related to that. And like I said, with Alice, you know, Greg and I leaned into those conversations right away. You know, that was very much like we need to tackle this from a product level. Um, and so, you know, I think having the support of the executives on your team, having the support of privacy champions within the business um, as well. But I, I think the main thing that I've learned and picked up is that I, you, what's incumbent upon me or the GC or the legal team in general is to start early setting what the culture is going to be around legal in the business. Like, are we off in a corner saying no? Are we available on Slack all the time at weird hours? What's the balance? <laughs> you know, are we right. are we trying to get to yes? Are we trying to close deals? Are we, you know, you and I both work in sales focused businesses. And, and so are we are we doing our best to not be the gate or the barrier to sales instead being a true partner to sales? And because right. that relationship can be fraught if you don't, if you don't get that culture, right? So to me, setting that culture that allows you to get privacy and legal champions in the business across product and engineering and, and other, um, and marketing in particular has a big privacy, um, touch point and legal, uh, touch point as well. So I, the big one for me is culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, going a little bit, a little bit along that is, is, you know, I've, I've tried to, as the leader of the legal teams, try to dictate sort of where I stand in terms of risk tolerance, you know, yeah. it's, and, and, and it's interesting because in the, in the privacy space, that's a, that really is an area where now you have people coming in and saying, I need full indemnification without limits, caps, et cetera for even, you know, the minor, the minor, the minor is whatever that may happen, or even a situation that says, you know, let's say AWS, something happens with AWS, right? right? And it's, it's something massive, like, you know, 
the setting up that risk appetite can really help you get through some of those conversations, I think, a little bit better. And, you know, and, and, and for us, it's, it's a lot of having confidence in your tech stack, but also being prudent with the way that you're that you're um, that you're working with, you know, the other party, your customer uh, to, to really. How have you managed that trend? I'd be interested to know from you, like, how have you managed that trend of, uh, you know, we both work in SaaS businesses, right? So how have you managed the trend of, well, you're processing my data. So because it is quickly becoming, in my view, the thing they ask for uncapped. It used to be like just confidentiality or just like willful right. misconduct or something. now it's 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 definitely privacy and, and 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 so how have you managed that ask because you know you and i again we're, we're in this we're not selling uh million dollar deals necessarily it's it's smaller deals yes yeah, uh, there are a couple of things i mean some sometimes um, if we're really going to get into a drawn out negotiation, I look at indemnification and limitation of liability uh, together and I'll, I'll try to I'll try to discuss them together with, you know, with the uh, with the potential customer. And and basically, if we're looking at, you know, exclusions of categories of damages, inevitably, everyone's like, oh, a data breach. You have to you, you have to accept that along with your IP provisions, along with your confidentiality provisions. And. And, and realistically, if you think about what that what a limitation of liability is meant to do, it's meant to allow for categories of damages where direct damages are not readily apparent or calculable, right? And so when you think about when you think about a lot of these data protection laws that actually do have statutory damages associated with them, your direct damages are your are your damages. And so in those circumstances, uh, your lost profits. Are not something that I'm really interested in trying to cover you for. Like I'm absolutely going to try to pull those out. Any of yes. your consequential indirect damages, um, and you know, same thing. Like it should be relatively calculable from an indemnification perspective to understand what your liability is going to be. Right. How many people do you have whose information you're putting in my hands? Right? Or yeah. just guess. Just yeah. guess. You know, and and accept it. So it's like. But the other side of that coin is, all right, well, how many people do they really have that they're giving us? So even if, even if it happens, who cares? Like, like I like the, your approach. I like your approach. It's interesting. You you take this um, more like there's there's many ways to approach these types of negotiations, and one is a more methodical approach, like you mentioned, and the other one can be sort of, well, I'm going to take responsibility for the things that are within my control, but we're in a world of changing laws constantly. You just alluded to the state laws, right? Like, I don't know what's coming next, you know, and, I, and I'm so it has to be calculable against the revenue that I'm getting. So it has to be like, there has to be like a, a measure of relationship between those. I'm not giving you uncapped liability or $20 million in liability for a 25K one year deal. Like, I, I can't do that. And I think people decide under. And they like more and more. I think people are understanding that, and we can get to a, a yes on that. But I like that there's different approaches. And what it did make me think of one more thing that I was curious about. Like, do you cap IP infringement? And I and this came uh, up from like this is personal. A person. I have a personal story about it after, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously. Uh, We'll we'll do it we'll do it in terms of in terms of like uh like an overall liability cap 
in the limitation of liability. But you know, it you know, excluding of course your gross negligence, intentional, right? All of the things that otherwise wouldn't be enforceable anyway. Right. right. Um, yeah, I mean, we we absolutely do. Yeah. Really interesting, right? Because you and I came up in the same the same generation of this, where in our past lives that was always uncapped. It was like, yeah. okay, if you have an IP infringement claim and you're the customer, you're like, well, okay, you cover that. I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. But when you're a SaaS provider, you're like, I, you're log, you're, I'm not building something into your code. I'm not like, there's no, there's no risk there for you. And so when we sold Session M to Mastercard, we had kind of had, we had had a bunch of deals that had uncapped liability in it for IP infringement claims. And they were sort of like, it was, it wasn't a sticking point, but it definitely came up. It was like, why do you have all these? And this is, why do you have all these uncapped provisions? And, um, and right. it, it just dawned on me, you know, I think that the world has changed around that provision um, in the last five or six years, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, earlier in my career, there was, it, it, and I, and I've argued the other side of it too, right. It needs to be right <laughs> um you know so it's harder, so harder and harder to argue it in my view uh, when the system is less and less critical um you know yeah. maybe link squares has a higher burden than maybe a marketing software like ours because it might be viewed as mission critical to somebody to get to their contracts or their sla around that maybe they may push a little more on what they want from an availability perspective like if they have a big legal team and that team can't work or something right and and i obviously the type of business is is something else too like like a cap on cap on ip infringement in a b2c environment is very different than a b2b environment right and and if you're talking about a brand which is your primary ip versus your awesome cutting edge software that no one can figure out how it does what it does that's like those are two very very different things to be to be defending against or, or thinking about yeah, like the aperture of exposure in a b2c business is just very different that's that's exactly right it's exactly right so um wanted to you know wanted to touch a little bit more on um you know any any sort of other aspects of your career any proud moments or any advice that you'd love to give to other in-house attorneys whether they're starting out or whether they're about to be in a in a negotiation with you uh, uh in <laughs> upcoming months uh proud moment for sure was um well so honestly any of the venture financings that i've worked on where we we get the fuel the business needs to go forward that's all that always feels good and those are always um challenging for different reasons but you find really good outside counsel to partner with and if it, it it's it's nice because it feels like a team win it feels like you got your outside partner you've got your inside folks all the team from finance to, to other parts of the business um working together uh that always feels really good um something you can empathize with an exit is always a huge event and you know the second mastercard deal was a great event um like excellent for difficult and hard and hard to get through but that celebratory moment when you it takes me back to team sports in high school you know feels that's that, right that feel of that that 
the hugs at the end, the drinks, the celebratory drinks at the end, like all that. Um, it's, we're definitely missing some of that now being so, so remote and separate from people. Yeah. Um, so those things are huge. And the other, the other couple things that came to my mind in terms of what feels, what feels good and feels successful is, is again, another thing that you can relate to, which is building teams and having the fortunate position to be able to hire great people, see them succeed. You know, I've got a few yep. people that have, have worked with me and, and that I hired that are um, GCs now and, and oh. huge, huge, like trying to build like Belichick coaching tree uh, of, of, of uh, successful, uh, successful, ni nice, uh, relatable human GCs, you know, in the, in the community is, is hugely pride inducing when you see people succeed like that. Absolutely, it is. And, and you know, put an excl exclamation point on the extra effort that it often takes to uh, to to mentor and develop attorneys in house. I mean, there's nothing better than than seeing uh, seeing people really learn, learn that what is a very different practice than, um, yeah. than you know, being at a firm or, or even government. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're going to start taking questions from uh, from the crowds. But um, on on the personal side, um, you know, part of part of the theme here is that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pilot. I love to fly airplanes and I have some pre-flight rituals that I do not only just when I'm flying myself, but also when I'm going on um, uh, when I'm going on commercial flights, um, one of which is uh, I, I absolutely, absolutely love to load up on the commercial flight, the pre predicted route into my four flight app on my iPad and just sort of see where we're going to go and see if they'll track or change. Uh, but wanted to know, do you have a pre-flight ritual that you, uh, whether, whether it's a snack, drink, meal, um, anything like that? I thought you were going to say you pray. before. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Well, and, and, and pre-COVID, when I was going back and forth to Vegas a lot with DraftKings, my wife and I would always meet for dinner before I grabbed the 9 p.m. flight out. So, um, but yeah, I'm interested in, in, in seeing what, uh, what, if anything, you got. I think my, my pre-flight pre ritual, I mean, it's been a while since I've flown, to be honest, but, um, you know, typically when I was on, when I'm on a work trip and I've worked really hard on something you know i'll uh i'll just i'll like i'll take that opportunity to watch a movie and i know that sounds sort of like silly but like and i used to crank on flights all the time and and just like crank crank work the whole time and i just start i just started trying you know to just not do that and to to, to watch something that fed my soul a little bit and i recall a flight to like a flight to flying to chicago and I put on one of those Fast and Furious movies. Like, <laughs> you don't have to think about it whatsoever. And uh, and I remember just at one point, like in the movie, one of the cars flew out of a building and landed in, like crushed and landed in another building. And I remember audibly going like, holy shit, like on the airplane. <laughs> so, you know, just doing my best to, to relax, to try to relax. Exactly. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and it looks like we've got time uh, for for one of the questions here. 
Um, your podcast, what's been your favorite episode so far? And what's your recommendation for a new listener? Which What's the go-to to, to uh, get them? Uh, so we've done three seasons. I'll try to, I'll try to think of one from each. Uh, Julia Shulman, the guest is the GC of Triple Lift, Link Square's customer. Um, yeah. Really good friend of mine. And um, great episode. She dresses up in 80s garb. She's an That's incredible awesome. GC, incredible chief privacy officer. Uh, incredibly insightful, great, great, um, hilarious episode. So that's a good one. Season two, um, one of my favorite uh, outside counsels, Gary Keibel, is a partner at Davis and Gilbert. Um, he talks all about his background as an IT guy and how he learned technology, which I always thought was super interesting to, that makes him a really good tech lawyer, you know, from actually you don't see that every day. You don't see a tech lawyer that actually understands tech. Uh, right. They've learned right. it, learned it maybe, but they've never done it. So the Gary Keibel episode of season two is great. And then maybe like the third season, um, probably the, the last episode we did, um, we had Kristen Sverchek, the GC of Lyft, was the last um, episode of that season. That was a, a fantastic episode touching on a ton of things around like AI, autonomous vehicles, um, privacy, uh, bringing your whole self to work. Like Kristen is an incredibly versatile GC. She's been at Lyft through every sort of change you can possibly see. So we just try to get a really good variety of, of guests on there and we just have a ton of fun and laugh a lot. That's awesome. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate uh, taking the time. I know you, you and you and the team at Alice are super, super busy these days. So really appreciate it. Like and, uh, Thank, thank you again, and looking forward to catching up soon. Yep. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me.